Particulars respecting Arundel Cook, Esquire, and John Woodburn, who were hanged for cutting and maiming Mr. Crisp. These people suffered on what is called the Coventry Act, to understand which it will be necessary to recite a few particulars. The Coventry Act took its rise from the following circumstance. Sir John Coventry, in the reign of Charles the Second, having opposed the measures of the court in the House of Commons, in revenge hereof, some armed villains attacked him one night in Covent Garden, slit his nose, and cut off his lips. Shocked by so barbarous a deed, the members of both Houses of Parliament passed an act in a few days by which it was ordered that, quote, unlawful cutting out, or disabling the tongue, of malice aforethought, or by lying in wait, putting out an eye, slitting the nose or lip, or cutting off or disabling any limb or member of any person, with intent to maim or disfigure, shall be felony without benefit of clergy. End quote. By this law it was likewise enacted that, quote, accessories shall be deemed principles. End quote. The parties whose crimes we are about to relate are the first who were executed on this act. Mr. Cook was born near Bury St. Edmunds in the county of Suffolk. His father was a man of fortune, and when he had given him an university education, he sent him to the temple to study the law, after which he was called to the bar and acted as a counsellor. After some time he married a young lady, the sister of Mr. Crisp, who lived in the neighborhood of his native place. Mr. Crisp, being a gentleman of large property, but a bad state of health, made his will in favor of Cook, subject only to a jointure for his sister's use, which was likewise to become the property of the counselor, in case the lady died before her husband. It was not long after Mr. Crisp had made his will before he recovered his health in some degree, but he continued an infirm man, though he lived a number of years. This partial recovery gave great uneasiness to Cook, who, wishing to possess the estate, was anxious for the death of his brother-in-law, though, as he had art enough to conceal his sentiments, they appeared to live on tolerable terms. However, he at length grew so impatient that he could not come into possession by death of Mr. Crisp that he resolved to remove him by murder, and for that purpose engaged John Woodburn, a laboring man who had six children, to assist him in the execution of this diabolical plan. For this piece of service he promised to give Woodburn a hundred pounds. The man was unwilling to be concerned in this execrable business, but reflections on his poverty and the largeness of his family tempted him to comply. On this it was agreed that the murder should be perpetrated on Christmas evening, and as Mr. Crisp was to dine with Mr. Cook on that day, and the churchyard lay between one house and the other, Woodburn was to wait, concealed behind one of the tombstones, till Cook gave him the signal for the attack, which was to be a loud whistle. Crisp came to his appointment, and dined and drank tea with his brother-in-law, but declining to stay for supper, 
He left the house about nine o'clock, and was almost immediately followed into the churchyard by Cook, who, giving the agreed signal to Woodburn, the latter quitted his place of retreat, knocked down the unhappy man, and cut and maimed him in a terrible manner, in which he was abetted by the counsellor. Imagining that they had dispatched him, Mr. Cook rewarded Woodburn with a few shillings, and instantly went home. But he had not been arrived more than a quarter of an hour before Crisp knocked at the door, and entered, covered with wounds, and almost dead through loss of blood. He was unable to speak, but by his looks seemed to accuse Cook with the intent of murder, and was then put to bed and his wounds dressed by a surgeon. At the end of about a week he was so much mended as to be removed to his own house. He had no doubt but Cook was one of the persons who had assaulted him, but had resolved not to speak of the affair till future circumstances made it necessary for him to inform a court of justice of what had happened. The intended assassination having greatly engaged the attention of the neighbours, Woodburn was apprehended on suspicion. When making a discovery of the whole truth, Cook was also taken into custody. They were brought to their trials at the next assizes, when both of them were convicted. When they were called up to receive sentence of death, Cook desired to be heard, and the court complying with his request, he urged that, quote, judgment could not pass on the verdict, because the act of Parliament simply mentions an intention to maim or deface, whereas he was firmly resolved to have committed murder, Quote. He quoted several law cases in favor of the arguments he had advanced, and hoped that judgment might be respited till the opinion of the twelve judges could be taken on the cause. The counsel for the Crown opposed the arguments of Mr. Cook, insisted that the crime came within the meaning of the law, and hoped that judgment would pass against the prisoners. Lord Chief Justice King, who presided on this occasion, declared that, he could not admit the force of Mr. Cook's plea consistent with his own oath as a judge, quote, for, he said, it would establish a principle in the law inconsistent with the first dictates of natural reason. As the greatest villain might, when convicted of a smaller offense, plead that the judgment must be arrested because he intended to commit a greater. In the present instance, said he, judgment cannot be arrested, as the intention is naturally implied when the crime is actually committed. His lordship said that Crisp was assassinated in the manner laid in the indictment. It is therefore to be taken for granted that the intention was to maim and deface, wherefore the court will proceed to give judgment, and accordingly sentence of death was passed on the prisoners. After condemnation, Cook employed his time principally in endeavours to procure a pardon, and when he found his expectations failed him, he grew reserved, and would not admit even the visits of his friends. On the contrary, Woodburn was all penitence and contrition, sincerely lamenting the crime he had been guilty of, and the miserable situation in which he left his poor children. 
A short time before the day of execution, Cook wrote to the sheriff, requesting that he might be hanged in the night, to prevent his being exposed to the country people who were expected from all the adjacent towns and villages and in consequence hereof he was hanged at four o'clock in the morning and woodburn was executed the afternoon of the same day the latter behaved with every sign of penitence but cook's conduct was very unfeeling and he absolutely refused to confess his crime these malefactors were executed at bury st edmunds on the fifth of april seventeen twenty two narrative of the remarkable actions of john hawkins and george simpson who were executed for robbing the bristol mail and hung in chains as the crime for which these malefactors suffered is very pernicious in its own nature and their other transactions made a great noise in the world at the time they took place we propose to give a particular account of them john hawkins was the son of a poor farmer at staines who not being able to afford to educate him properly he went into service of a gentleman which he soon quitted and lived as a waiter at the red lion at brentford but leaving this place he again engaged as a gentleman's servant after living in different families he became butler to sir dennis drury and was distinguished as a servant of very creditable appearance indeed his person was uncommonly graceful and he was remarkably vain of it he used to frequent gaming-tables two or three nights in the week a practice which led to that ruin which finally befell him about this time sir dennis had been robbed of a considerable quantity of plate and as hawkins mode of life was very expensive it was suspected that he was the thief for which reason he was discharged without the advantage of a good character being thus destitute of the means of subsistence, he had recourse to the highway, and his first expedition was to Hounslow Heath, where he took eleven pounds from the passengers in a coach. But such was his attachment to gaming, that he repaired directly to London, where he lost it all. He continued to rob alone for some time, losing at the gaming-houses what he obtained at so much risk, and he then engaged to rob with other highwaymen but the same fate still attended him he lost by gaming what he got by thieving and was frequently so reduced as to dine at an eating-house and then sneak off without paying his reckoning several of hawkins old companions having met their deserts at the gallows he became acquainted with one wilson a youth of good education who had been articled to a solicitor in chancery but had neglected his business through an attachment to the gaming-tables those associates having committed several robberies in conjunction were tried for one of them but acquitted for want of evidence though wilson in an account published after hawkins condemnation confesses they were guilty immediately after this wilson went down to his mother who lived at whitby in yorkshire and continued with her for about a year and then coming to london lived with a gentleman of the law but having lost his money in gaming renewed his acquaintance with hawkins who was now concerned with a new gang of villains but one of these being apprehended impeached the rest which soon dispersed the gang but not till some of them had made their exit at tyburn 
on which Hawkins was obliged to conceal himself for a considerable time, but at length he ventured to rob a gentleman on Finchley Common, and shot one of the servants so that he died on the spot. His next attack was on the Earl of Burlington and Lord Bruce in Richmond Lane, from whom he took about twenty pounds, two gold watches, and a sapphire ring. For this ring a reward of a hundred pounds was offered to Jonathan Wilde, but Hawkins sailed to Holland with it, and there sold it for forty pounds. Hawkins, returning to England, joined his companions, of whom Wilson was one, and robbed Sir David Dalrymple of three pounds, a snuff-box, and a pocket-book, for which last Sir David offered sixty-pound reward to Wilde. But the robbers, having no connection with that execrable villain, who did not even know their persons, they sent the book by a porter to Sir David without expense. Hawkins and his associates next stopped Mr. Hyde of Hackney in his coach, and robbed him of ten pounds and his watch, but missed three hundred pounds which the gentleman then had in his possession. After this they stopped the Earl of Westmoreland's coach in Lincoln's Inn Fields, and robbed him of a sum of money, though there were three footmen behind the carriage. The footman called the watch, but the robbers firing a pistol over their heads, the guardians of the night decamped. Hawkins had now resolved to carry the booty obtained in several late robberies to Holland, but Jonathan Wilde, having heard of the connection, caused some of the gang to be apprehended, on which the rest went into the country to hide themselves. On this occasion Hawkins and Wilson went to Oxford, and paying a visit to the Bodleian Library, the former wantonly defaced some pictures in the gallery and a hundred pounds reward was offered to discover the offender, and a poor tailor being taken up on suspicion narrowly escaped being whipped merely because he was of Whiggish principles. Wilson and Hawkins returning to London, and the former coming of age at that time, succeeded to a little estate his father had left him, which he sold for three hundred and fifty pounds, a small part of which he lent to his companions to buy horses, and soon dissipated the rest at the gaming-table. The associates now stopped two gentlemen in a chariot on Hampstead Road, who both fired at once by which three slugs were lodged in Hawkins' shoulder, and the highwayman got to London with some difficulty. On Hawkins' recovery, they attempted to stop a gentleman's coach in Hyde Park, but the coachman, driving hastily, Wilson fired, and wounding himself in the hand, found it difficult to scale the park wall to effect his escape. This circumstance occasioned some serious thoughts in his mind in consequence of which he set out for his mother's house in yorkshire where he was kindly received and fully determined never to return to his former practices while he was engaged in his mother's business and planning schemes for domestic happiness he was sent for to a public-house where he found his old acquaintance hawkins in company with george simpson of whom we shall have occasion to relate more in the course of this narrative Wilson was shocked at seeing them, and asked what could induce them to make such a journey. Hereupon Hawkins swore violently, said Wilson was impeached, and would be taken into custody in a few days. This induced him to go to London with them, but on his arrival he found that the story of the impeachment was false. 
When in London, they formed connections with other thieves, and committed several robberies, for which some of the gang were executed. They frequented a public house at London Wall, the master of which kept a livery stable, so that they rode out at all hours and robbed the stages as they were coming into town. They took not only money, but portmanteaus and etc., and divided the booty with Carter, the master of the livery stable. In this practice they continued a considerable time, till they were apprehended for robbing the mail, which we shall have occasion to mention in the sequel. George Simpson was a native of Putney in Surrey. His father was a wine merchant, but being reduced in circumstances removed to Lincolnshire. Young Simpson kept a public house at Lincoln, and acted as a sheriff's officer, but quitting the country he came to London, and was butler to Lord Castlemaine, after which he lived in several other credible places. He now became acquainted with Hawkins, in company with whom he stopped the carriage of Richard West Esquire, behind Buckingham House, from whom they took a gold watch and other valuable articles. Soon after this he robbed the Portsmouth coach in company with Wilson, when one of the company fired at them. Thus they continued their depredations on the public, till one of their associates, named Child, was executed at Aylesbury, and hung in chains for robbing the mail. This incensed them to such a degree, that they determined to revenge the supposed insult by committing a similar crime. They mentioned their design in the presence of Carter, the stable-keeper, who advised them to stop the mail from Harwich. But this they declined, because the changing of the wind must render the time of its arrival uncertain. At length it was determined that they would rob the Bristol mail, and they set out on an expedition for that purpose. It appeared on the trail that the boy who carried the mail was overtaken at Slough by a countryman who travelled with him to Langley Broom, where a person rode up to them and turned back again. After passing through Colnbrook, they saw the same man again, with two others, who followed them at a small distance, and then, pulling their wigs over their foreheads, and holding handkerchiefs in their mouths, came up with them, and commanded the post-boy and the countrymen to come down a lane, where they ordered them to quit their horses, and then Hawkins, Simpson, and Wilson tied them back to back, and fastened them to a tree in a wet ditch so that they were obliged to stand in the water. This being done, they took such papers as they liked out of the bath and bristol bags, and hid the rest in a hedge. They now crossed the Thames, and riding a little way into Surrey, put up their horses at an inn in Bermondsey Street. It was now about six in the morning, when they parted, and went different ways to a public-house in the Minories, where they proposed to divide their ill-gotten treasure. The landlord, being acquainted with the persons and knowing the profession of his guests, showed them a private room, and supplied them with pen and ink. Having equally divided the bank-notes, they threw the letters in the fire, and then went to their lodgings at Green Arbor Court in the Old Bailey. A few days after this transaction they were taken into custody in the following manner. 
information having been given at the post-office that suspicious people frequented the house of Carter, the stable-keeper at London Wall, some persons were sent thither to make the necessary discoveries. Wilson, happening to be there at the time, suspected their business, on which he abruptly retired, slipped through some by-alleys, and got into the Moorgate coffee-house, which he had occasionally used two years before, on account of its being frequented by reputable company, and therefore less liable to be searched for suspicious people. He had not been long in the house before a Quaker mentioned the search that was making in the neighborhood for the men who robbed the mail. This shocked him, so that he instantly paid his reckoning, and going out the back door, went into Bedlam, where the melancholy sight of the objects around him induced him to draw a comparison between their situation and his own. Annie concluded that he was far more unhappy through weight of his guilt than those poor wretches whom it had pleased God to deprive of the use of their intellects. Having reflected that it would not be safe for him to stay longer in London, he resolved to go to Newcastle-by-the-Sea, and he was confirmed in this resolution on reflecting that a person who wished his safety had informed him that he and his companions were the parties suspected of having robbed the mail. This friend likewise advised him to go to the post-office, surrender, and turn evidence, hinting that, if he did not, it was probable Simpson would, as he had asked some questions which seemed to intimate such a design. Wilson neglected this advice, but held his reso resolution of going to Newcastle, and with that intention quitted Bedlam, but by Moorgate coffee-house he met the man he had seen at Carter's. They turned and followed him. Yet unperceived by them he entered the coffee-house, while they went under the arch of the gate. And if he had returned by the door he entered, he would have again escaped them. But going out of the foredoor of the house, they took him into custody and conducted him to the post-office. On his first examination, he refused to make any confession. On the following day, he seemed equally determined to conceal the truth, till two circumstances induced him to reveal it. In the first place, the postmaster-general promised that he should be admitted an evidence if he would discover his accomplices. And one of the clerks, calling him aside, showed him a letter without any name to it, of which the following is a copy. Quote, Sir, I am one of those persons who rob the mails which I am sorry for, and, to make amends, I will secure my two companions as soon as may be. He whose hand this shall appear to be will, I hope, be entitled to reward and his pardon. End quote. As Wilson knew this letter to be of Simpson's handwriting, he thought himself justified in making a full discovery, which he accordingly did, in consequence of which his associates were apprehended at their lodgings in the Old Bailey two days afterwards. At first they made an appearance of resistance, and threatened to shoot the peace officers, but the latter saying they were provided with arms, the offenders yielded, and were committed to Newgate. On the trial, Hawkins endeavoured to prove that he was in London at the time the mail was robbed, and when Fuller, of Bedfordbury, swore he lodged at his house that night. To ascertain this, 
Fuller produced a receipt for thirty shillings, which he said Hawkins then paid him for horse hire. The judge, desiring to look at that receipt, observed that the body of it was written in an ink of a different colour from that of the name at the bottom, on which he ordered the note to be handed to the jury, and remarked that Fuller's testimony deserved no kind of credit. After examining some other witnesses, the judge proceeded to sum up the evidence, in which he was interrupted by a singular occurrence, which will be best understood by giving it in the words of the shorthand writer. My ink, as it happened, was very bad, being thick at the bottom, and thin and waterish at the top, and so that accordingly, as I dipped my pen, the writing appeared very pale or very black. Now, just as the court was remarking on the difference in ink in Fuller's receipt, a gentleman who stood by me, perceiving something of the same kind in my writing, desired to look upon my notes for a minute. As I was not aware of any ill consequence, I let him take the book out of my hand, when presently, showing it to his friend, "'See here,' said he, "'what difference there is in the colour of the ink!' His friend took it and showed it to another. Uneasy at this, I spoke to them to return my book. They begged my pardon, and said I should have it in a minute. But this answer was no sooner given than a curiosity suddenly entered one of the jurymen who sat just by, and he too begged a sight of the book, which, notwithstanding my importunity, was immediately handed to him. He viewed it, and gave it to the next, and so it passed from one to another, till the judge, perceiving them very busy, called to them, Gentlemen! "'What are you doing? What is that book?' They told him it was the writer's book, and they were observing how the same ink appeared pale in one place and black in another. "'You ought not, gentlemen,' says he, "'take notice of anything but what is produced in evidence,' and then, turning to me, demanded what I meant by showing that to the jury. I answered, that I could not fix upon the persons for the gentlemen near me were all strangers to me, and I was far from imagining that I should have any occasion for taking particular notice of them. His lordship then reassumed his charge to the jury, which being ended, they withdrew to consider of their verdict. After staying out about an hour, the jury returned into court without agreeing on a verdict saying they could not be convinced that Fuller's receipt was not genuine, merely on account of the different colours of the ink. In answer hereto, the court intimated how many witnesses had sworn that Hawkins was absent from London, to contradict all of whom there was only the evidence of Fuller, which was at least rendered doubtful by the ink appearing of two colours and it was submitted whether Fuller's single testimony ought to be held of equal validity with that of all the opposing parties. Hereupon the jury went out of court, and on their return gave a verdict of guilty against both the prisoners. After sentence of death they behaved as became persons in their unfortunate circumstances. Simpson, in particular, appeared to be highly affected with the awfulness of his situation. 
At the place of execution, Hawkins addressed the surrounding multitude, acknowledging that his sins had brought him to that shameful end, professing to die in charity with all mankind, and begging the prayers of those who were witnesses of his melancholy exit. He died with great difficulty, but Simpson was out of his pain almost without a struggle. Account of the trial of Margaret Fisher for privately stealing, with the singular evidence given against her. In September 1722, Margaret Fisher was indicted at the Old Bailey for privately stealing thirteen guineas from the person of Daniel MacDonald. As our readers have a claim upon us for matters of entertainment as well as instruction, we are ready to gratify them, as we always shall be when it can be done without grossly violating the laws of decency. And we insert the following for the sake of the whimsical singularity of the prosecutor's evidence, which was delivered in the following terms. And leak your lairdship, I had just taken my wages, thirteen guineas in good, and was gone along King Strait in Westminster, when I met with this foe queen at the bar, and she spirited me where I was gone. I told her ham. She said, Jen, I would ga with her till Joni Davis's hoose. She would give me a dram, sir, for in truth she took me for a poor gawky boss-headed chill and leak your lairdship she took my hood on my hand and lad me a get i canna real wheel and when we came to Juni davis's hoose she cod for mickle beer and brain dee and guard me as bung as a swoob and leak your honour I stayed there with her a pretty while, and then, sir, I pit my hand into my bricks to feel for money to pay the rackening. But the deal a bobby could I find for it was a tint. And when I spirit about it, they glowered and turned me gen I want to tack myself a warm. They wad ga me ga with a deal to me. They dang me sousser and turn me out at the back door into the strat, and I rumbled about and could not find the hoose again. And the watchman mat with me and carried me into the ruined house. And there I told em who I had been robbed. The niece mornin I gad on foot oot Juni Davis's hoose, but she was rin away, and the prasner too. But at neat, about seven o'clock, I met with this impudent batch at the bar, and took her up. I kin real 
weel enough that she must ha my good for na sal also was with me but joni davis wa brought wa we cod for let her de need on she can somebody but i kenna wa it was offered me sacks guineas in my hand to make the matter up but i would not tack it in her defence the prisoner alleged that meeting with a coachman and the prosecutor the former asked her to drink on which they went to the house of mrs davis but that she sat on the opposite side of the room that the prosecutor did and had not robbed him and that nothing was found upon her when she was searched but the jury not believing her allegations and as she had no persons to appear in behalf of her character she was found guilty and received sentence of death however she pleaded that she was with child and a jury of matrons finding this to be the fact she had the good fortune to be respited and afterwards pardoned the end of part seven 